Alright, why don't we open up in prayer, and uh, let's give this time to the Lord. Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to come together as a, as a church family today, to worship your name, to um, lift up your word, and here in, in Sunday School to, to look at history. I just pray that you give us your heart, give us, uh, give us the opportunity to see you at work. Give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I actually uh, originally wrote this lesson like two and a half weeks ago because I uh, I was going to do this back the day that we didn't have church because it was all snowy. So I'm hoping I remember this well enough to do this. Um, we're talking about the Reformation. <laughs> we've, we've talked about the uh, all sorts of things. We just talked about the Counter-Reformation. Now we're going to start talking about the wars of religion that are really kind of a big deal. In Europe, it should be a big deal to us as we look at what constitutes these things, what brought these things about. Because we, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's still people that fight about religion now. You know, yeah, I know. Go figure. What? Yeah, we're putting boots on the ground against ISIS. So I mean, there's, there's. Uh, did you, did you uh, hear the quote from Obama at the prayer breakfast or prayer thingy? Which which quote? Which quote? <laughs> but what do you? What do you um, no, it's one where he was like, you know, like. Other, like, he was talking about, like, we shouldn't be so hard on. Oh. I think it was about the Muslims because, you know, Christians used to, you know, Christians have waged holy wars too back in the Crusades. Like, that was the closest time, like, right. period of time you could come up with. Well, yeah, a thousand years ago, we also right. tended to kill people for the, right. you know, yes. Yeah. Which is, which is cheap because he could have just come 500 years ago and said, we were killing each other right and left. So, anyway, like this. Um, we ended. Coming to power. That's the last thing we talked about in, in class. Uh, and she was a good Catholic like her mom, because her mom was Catarina, uh, Cata, yeah, Catarina of Aragon, right? She's from Spain. That uh, was Henry's first wife. And if you remember, that's also the aunt of the current Holy Roman Emperor. So there's what? I was just thinking about the Facebook thing. Yeah, okay. Uh, Sarah found this nifty Facebook, fake Facebook from the Reformation era, and it's sticking hysterical. It's absolutely hysterical as to how this works. It's a little off-color in, in parts, but uh, but it's actually nails the vibe of the time period. My favorite bit was... Yeah, my, my favorite bit was when, when in the, on the Facebook thing, Henry uh, says about Catherine, uh, the relationship suddenly has turned to, it's complicated. And you see her responding going, wait, what? So, if you remember, this is the wife that Henry got his friend Thomas Cranmer uh, uh, elevated to Archbishop so that he could get this annulled, because the Pope wouldn't annul it. So, because, of course, she's really powerful and really important, and so the Pope's like, no, I'm not annulling that, and so Cranmer does, and that's the beginning of Reformation in England. Not really, it's just the beginning of the Church of England. Reformation came later, when they brought in other people. Anyway. Funky little teaching moment about that, though. Um, Henry had the, 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 the marriage annulled, right? He didn't have a divorce. He had it annulled, saying, we never actually had sex. Never actually consummated the relationship. You go, all right, I think you probably did, but whatever. Well, but then why are you divorcing her? No. Because she didn't give you a son. Well, you couldn't because we never consummated it. Right. But you go, well, what about Mary, then? <laughs> Who's Mary? You have a whole daughter here. What does that, seriously, what does that mean? If 
if you never consummated the relationship and you, here's her daughter Mary that everybody knows she gave birth to, what does that mean about Mary? She's illegitimate. She's illegitimate. Seventeen year old Princess Mary oh, is illegitimate. Girl. Yeah. Beloved daughter. Nope, not mine. Go away. So she's demoted from Princess Mary to Lady Mary, and eventually she's made lady in waiting for the newborn baby half sister Elizabeth. So so Elizabeth and Mary, they're tight, right? Oh, how would you like to? How would you like it if it's like suddenly I, I said to Megan, "Yeah, you're not my daughter, and now you're gonna have to take care of the baby of my new wife." Yeah, like, Mary, you, there's a reason why she's just not a happy-looking person here. In pretty much every painting I've ever seen of Mary the First, not a happy-looking person. So when their brother Edward finally comes to the to the throne, he knows that this is a dangerous person. And, 15 years old, he's dying of tuberculosis, he knows he's not going to be able to remain king. He's like, no way I'm letting Mary take the throne, because she's going to re-Catholicize England. She's going to undo everything. Edward had tried to, to take, if you remember, Edward had taken his father's messed up Church of England and said, let's actually make this a legitimate Reformation church. Let's actually bring some religion into this. He's a teenage boy, but he's trying. But he's like, there's no way I'm letting Mary take the throne. So he actually has to get rid of both sisters. He has to sit there and say, I have to remove them both from the line of, of succession. I can't just remove Mary from the line of succession. So, Wait, females, okay. Females were allowed in the line of succession? Yeah. Have they always been? No, but it's it's complicated. South law, we'll talk to you about that I afterwards. But yeah. yeah. But it is, it is complicated. Anyway. So the lady Jane Grey, uh, Henry's grandniece, 16 years old, she becomes the Queen of England. She gets brought in July 9th, 1553, and deposed July 19th, 1553. <laughs> Ten days as Queen of England. Um, that which sounds like my essay, like, you know, junior high, what would you do if you were president for a day? Yeah. What would I do if I were queen for 10 days? Unfortunately, you don't just, they don't just make you queen and then you go, Okay, I thought it was fun. Now I'm going to retire to a country estate. So, president for a day. Well, yeah. Now there's some question as to whether or not she was a decent person, whether or not she would have made a good, good queen. Doesn't matter. She's queen for a week and a half. Um, and so, uh, Mary by then had built up her Catholic support in the area, and there were still Catholics in England. And so she'd gotten a bunch of Catholics to say, "No, nope, we want you to re-Catholicize England." And so they took her down and, and, and killed her. So, she was so popular with Carlos, because remember, he's emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, that he gave her his son, Felipe, Philip II of Spain, as her consort. So Philip II is now king of Spain and king of England. Actually, there is a little bit of, I can see that. But, if you think of it this way, England and Spain are now one country at the same time. That's kind of big. And because they control Naples, they also have this. Technically, he also holds some lands up here. His dad is the Holy Roman Emperor, so even though he doesn't become the next Holy Roman Emperor, you could argue that all this brown here is also this kind of dark orange. So this is kind of huge, right? I mean, the entire, if they're playing diplomacy, this is what you want to see, right? Because you got you got red, 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 surrounding everybody and just growing. 
this is huge. These are the power couple of the of the of the mid sixteenth century. The happening couple. They don't look happy about it, <coughs> but they're the happening couple. Kind of huge. So, pardon me. Oh, okay. So, uh, she's referred to in history as Bloody Mary, from where we get the drink. But Bloody Mary immediately began persecuting the Protestants in England. Now she said she's not going to. She swore, if you guys bring me to the throne, I'm going to re-Catholicize things, but everybody can be Protestant, you can do your thing, I'm not going to make a big to-do, everything will be fine, we'll all just be happy, but, but I'm Protestant, and if you remember, there's this whole, whoever rules, that's the religion we're going with, but, but I'll be cool about this. And everybody went, okay, that sounds good. She's like, okay, July, I said that, September, you're all going down. I start burning people right and left. <coughs> Especially, I'm going to arrest Thomas Cranmer. Why does she have a big problem with Thomas Cranmer? Yeah, at least helped with that. Yeah, he, he's the one that helped with, with the decision that ultimately made her illegitimate. Made made helped her dad to annul the marriage to her mom. So she forces Parliament to declare her parents' marriage and thus herself legitimate. That was legit, right? Therefore, I get to be the legit Queen of England. So what does that do? You got it! Edward and Elizabeth are illegitimate. And Elizabeth goes, wait, who said what? Edward, of course, is dead, but Elizabeth isn't happy. get over the succession thing that he... Was that not very hard to get over? Did he like make a law, or what did he do to try to make it so that they couldn't succeed? What did he do? Yeah. Well, he, he just said he, he, the king can actually declare these people are not part of the of the succession. They don't get to do now whether they follow that or not. But he can't because he's illegitimate. Therefore, he was never really king. Therefore, every law he ever made is null and void, including the whole succession thing. Which is why I can be queen, because I'm legit, because my brother said I wasn't, but my brother was illegitimate, wasn't he? What a chess game. Total chess game! Total chess game! Everything that Edward did, oh, totally. Edward, everything that Edward did was totally null and void, including all of his religious reforms. Because he was illegitimate, right? So, throw all that out the, out the window. English law reversed the way it had been before Henry. We're under the sovereignty of Rome. Everybody, bow down to Pope Paul IV. We're doing everything as if Henry never happened. We are utterly, completely Catholic. Everybody who's not Catholic, burned at the stake. This is what we're doing. Remember, England has been passing out Bibles right and left. It's illegal for you to have a Bible. If anybody in your family has a Bible, you're dead. We're going back to Catholic law. Nobody reads scripture. Nobody. Not the priest, not you, not anybody. There's a reason why we call it Bloody Mary, right? So, thousands of Protestants are arrested and hundreds are burned under the uh, newly, formerly repealed, back into it, heresy laws. Wacky fun to be there in England and, and be a Protestant. Hundreds include Thomas Cranmer. In fact, this is a picture of Thomas Cranmer burning at the stake. Um, it's interesting, she had him tortured and he was forced to watch all of his other reformed bishops getting tortured and killed. And so he was forced to recant. Uh, you're going to sign a confession accepting Holy Roman Empire, accepting the Roman Catholic doctrine, accepting that there is no salvation outside of the Catholic Church. 
you're going to accept the authority of Pope, you're going to do this, and he said, okay. Because he watched everybody dying badly, and he's just like, yeah, I'll do that. She's like, you are going to get tortured, and you're going to get burned if you don't. He said, okay, then I will. And so she had him sentenced to burning anyway. She's like, yep, yeah, even though it's against canon law. Catholic canon law goes, well, wait. If he actually recants, then you, like, strangle him or something, because you can't kill him as a heretic, because he's no longer a heretic. You burn heretics. But he recanted, so you can't actually burn him. And she's like, burn him anyway. This one burns. No matter what he does, he's tortured and burned. I don't care if he sits there and says, I love the Pope, I'll kiss the Pope's ring, everything's fine. This one burns. Absolutely. So Cranmer publicly recants his recantation. He's supposed to publicly get up and express his recantation. Once he finds out that he's going to burn anyway, he's just like, should never recant it. The Pope is scum. The, the Catholic Church is horrible. There's only faith in... The only way you can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. And, get, and he's actually dragged away from the pulpit. As he's getting up there giving this recantation of his recantation, they drag him off and, and say, nope, 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 that never happened. Ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> and he promised that as he's burning, he's like, I am going to stick my right hand, the one that signed this recantation, that's going to go into the deepest part of the fire. I'm burning that thing first, because that's the hand that offended Jesus. And that's exactly what he did. At his execution, once his ropes burned on uh, uh, his hand, the, the moment he could get it free, he took his right hand and he dumped it into the deepest part of the fire. And he's just like, this burns first. Because that way I know I go to heaven with my hand cleansed and my soul cleansed before the Lord. That's exactly what he quoted. Can I ask a question? Absolutely. He didn't have a Bible. They didn't let him have a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've been told, like, um, out uh, east right now with ISIS and all that stuff, that there's a lot of the Muslims converting to Christianity because of all this. Was that happening in England as these people are burning? They're thinking, um, this is not the religion I want to be. Oh, yeah. This is, this is one of the best things. Yeah, this is one of the things that, that was huge into making England actually sink in with the whole Reformation. Because if you remember, it started off, it wasn't really a Reformation, it was just very corrupt. Right? And then they brought in people from the continent, they tried, Cranmer tried to, it's like, can we, can we bring some religion to the Church of England? Can we help this? And it was starting to kick in. This is one of the main events that made actual legit Reformation come to England. Because up to this point, they hadn't really been experiencing I mean, they looked, they, walked, they looked overseas, and they saw France killing all the Albigensians, and they went, wow. You know, they heard about what was going on in Germany, killing all the Lutherans, and they're like, huh. Well, we have laws going, you, you, can't, you can't have a Bible in your house. But we, we haven't really done that for a while. And under Henry and under Edward, we, we repealed all those. For the last, you know, what, 30 years, we've been... It's been pretty cool around here. Yeah, 20, 30 years. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, this came, you go, this is as nasty as anything that anybody's doing in the continent. And there were a lot of people doing exactly what you said. There were a lot of people going, oh, I get it. <laughs> I see. This is why. This is why people are going, okay, enough of this. So, um, even Mary's Catholic supporters are like, you're going too far. You're ignoring your own can canon law. You're just encouraging rebellion. This is dumb. You, this is dumb. You are doing this badly. But she kept plodding away. When she did die, 
England was in, just like I said, a shambles. I mean, the, the economy is shot. Uh, spiritually, there are people at a loss going, I don't even know what I believe and why I believe it. Uh, Philip pretty much has said, I'm sitting here in Spain. You know, I've avoided most of it. I, I, I put my head over there in England every once in a while, but for the most part, everybody, when they think of Philip, they go, yeah, that, that Spanish guy. Is he a bad king? I don't know. He's in Spain. I don't even know if he speaks English. You know, it's like, we never see him. Uh, Mary even locked Elizabeth up in the Tower of London because she's like, she's plotting against me, which she probably wasn't. But I have to put probably in there because there are a number of people going, um, Mary's gone bonkers. Uh, what do we do here? And Elizabeth may or may not have been part of that because there were people genuinely actively courting Elizabeth going, you do realize she's crazy and she's destroying the country. Yeah, yeah. And if she goes, who gets to become queen? No, there's... But but we don't have anything directly linking Elizabeth to anything. So I don't think she actually was plotting against her sister. But it would have made total sense if she were, and there were a lot of people trying to get her to plot against her sister. How long was Mary for? Um, for... Oh, now I've... Um... 53 and she died um, in 58. So she was okay. five years. Five nasty five years. years yeah. Five nasty years. So Mary was forced to name 25 year old Elizabeth as the new queen when she finally died. Because she's like, nuts. There's nobody else. I killed everybody else. There's Did nobody. she have any kids? Nope. Nope. Not that she could have put on the throne. So 25 year old Elizabeth is the new queen. After Mary's death, Philip goes, hey, Elizabeth, would you like to get married? Let's just keep this wonderful thing in the family. And Elizabeth's like, you're nuts. So, so England and Spain went back to being separate kingdoms. But there was a moment there for five years where you go, this, this could go a completely different way. And, 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 and Carlos is sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because basically he saw Germany as a lost cause. He's like, oh, I've lost everything going on here. There's even, there's even some... Um, Protestant movements going on in northern Italy. He's like, no, this is horrible. Then all of a sudden, Naples and England and Spain are all Catholic and everything's great and they're all one big thing. And they, oh, and Philip's got stuff in northern Germany. Yeah, this will be great. Oh, no, 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 no. So, very sad. Uh, but it really could have gone another way. And Philip's not done with England yet. Uh, because in about 30 years, he's going to send the Spanish Armada to take out the English. So that's kind of a big thing in the, in the, in the late 1580s. That's a really interesting story, but that's, that's 30 years. Anyway, um, so Elizabeth, one of the first things she did was to say, okay, most of what Mary did, we're undoing. Most of it. Um, we're going to return the country to the religious status England enjoyed under Edward, religious tolerance and things like that, but not everything. We're going to keep a lot of Catholic trappings with things. So much so that, that a lot of historians are like, well, was she Catholic or was she Protestant? Was she Protestant? She's Protestant. She's Catholic. She's... I don't know, because she was extremely good at not telling anybody. Um, because she's like, I don't want to torque anybody off. I'm sure she learned to walk very carefully. I think, she learned, to, I think she learned to walk very carefully and carry a very big stick. Um, but she's like, nope, we're, we're a Protestant nation. But I think there's a lot of important Catholic things that we need to reinfuse into this. 
Now, the reason I say it that way, because you could say, well, didn't she learn just to be more Catholic? Maybe she genuinely appreciated Everything we get about Elizabeth would suggest that everything she did was very political. Um, not that she didn't have a personal faith, or that faith wasn't important, but that all these decisions she was making, she's like extremely politically astute. And so, if she sat there and said, I think we're going back to Protestantism, there's a large political component to that. And if she said, I think we were going to have some Catholic trappings to this, there's a large political component to that. She was playing politics a lot, which is part of why she was queen for a good long time. Fifteen fifty nine, Pope creates the Order of the Golden Spur, which is which is kind of fun in and of itself. That's not important, but it's a nice moment. Sorry, just, do, does anyone think that Mary was poisoned since she only reigned for five years? Yeah, um, no, I'm just think. thinking. I'm sure people like were desperate. She seemed to have died of. of, of uh, I'm sure they were. I think she died of, of natural causes. Okay. Okay. I mean. I, at this yeah, time in history, you, this time in history, you go. So it's with abortions in there, right? There, yeah, there's a lot of that, by the way, and that's also what they claimed with the Spanish Armada. But I'm not going to go there. In fact, <laughs> even Phillips was like, apparently, God fought for the English. But anyway, um, Paul IV, strong traditionalist and a bit of a sourpuss, is what I'm saying here. I mean, he's just, he's a bit grumpy. I mean, he looks perky, but he's a little grumpy. Uh, the only reason he accepted the papacy was because Carlos V hated him. And he hated Carlos V. Oh, wow. And so, and so he's like, wait, this will torque off the emperor? Yeah. Okay. I'll be Pope. Primarily just because I really hate the guy who doesn't like this idea. So, I refuse to accept or acknowledge Queen Elizabeth as queen. Never going to happen. Even though Mary, Catholic Mary, had said, yeah, I, I, I accept her, I accept the succession. Pope Paul's like, nope, Mary's Queen of England. She's been dead for a couple of years. Nope, she's Queen of England. Um, he cut off the promised papal pension to Michelangelo because Michelangelo refused to paint more clothes on them. <laughs> He's like, put some clothes on these people. Michelangelo's like, no, I painted them that for way for reason. He's like, that's it, no pension for you. Well, I painted them way. Julius was fine with this. Shut up. Um, 1555, he issued a, 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 a bull, um, pardon me? I said they got close eventually. Eventually. Um, but he, he wrote a bull that said, it's, it's completely absurd and inappropriate to be in a situation where Christian piety, where our Christian grace allows the Jews, whose guilt all of their own doing has condemned them to eternal slavery, it's ridiculous that we allow Jews access to our society and even to live among us. Indeed, they are without gratitude to us Christians. As instead of thanks for the gracious treatment, because you've noticed the last couple hundred years how well yeah, they've been treated. Yeah. Years, yeah. Uh, the gracious treatment. Instead, they, they return invective. And amongst themselves, instead of slavery, which they deserve, I don't know if I said that, but they deserve it, they manage to claim superiority over us. No, yeah, no, they, they totally aren't. They're rotten. Um, they just sit there and mutter against us. They, they say bad things. Um, and they don't get the right to say bad things about the people who are abusing them. So this bull requires all Jews be relegated to things called ghettos. Uh, they, these are, um, they're like sub-towns, just out, on the edge of town. But they're walled, they have only one entrance and one exit, so that we can watch where they're coming and going from. 
you stick people you don't like in a ghetto, in, a, in an urban environment that's coming from this. Um, and they're going to be forced to wear distinctive yellow clothing <laughs> items so that we can specifically see at all times, on pain of death, they must wear this stuff. Um, so we can see at all times that they're Jews, even from a distance. They cannot play or eat or otherwise fraternize with Christians as if they're equals. None of them. They cannot treat other Christians as equals. No Jew is allowed to be shown any respect. You do not call him sir. You do not call him mister. You don't call her ma'am. You do not show them any respect. They deserve no respect. Keep them in their ghettos. They cannot bring any legal charge against any Christians under any circumstances. By the way, that's not going to make any Christians do anything naughty to any Jews, right? So I don't care if, if, if a Jew comes up and says, I have documented evidence that Christians have defrauded me. Look at him and go, what, you're talking to me like you're a human being? You're talking to me like you have the right to talk against a Christian? Get out of my face, you're just a Jew. And they must always speak and write in Latin in all their business dealings with Christians, because otherwise they're going to talk their Jewish gobbledygook at one another, and you're never going to know what they're talking about. Because you know, you know when they did their, do their chicken scratches on, on paper that they're defrauding you. So they write in Latin, they speak in Latin. They, don't, they do not, they do not ever get to take you to court. You do not treat them with respect. They are subhuman. They are rightfully slaves. God wants it that way. A while. Did they try to migrate then? This isn't just in Rome. This is everywhere in Europe. So, yeah, everywhere in Christendom. This is what's supposed to happen. Um, Were there some Muslim areas where they get a little more tolerance? No? <laughs> well, actually, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. It would depend. Um, depends on who's in charge where, you know. But uh, the Ottomans, at various points, were like, "Sure, we'll ferry you guys over here. You know, we'll we'll take care of you." Um, other times, in other places, not so much. But um, but I, I bring this up. I was just telling Wendy about this last night. You got to remember that when we get to things like the Nazis. This is not a new thing. Um, and, and there was a strong anti-Semitic element in the United States and a strong fascist anti-Semitic element in England in the 1930s. It's just like, the Nazis just did it more effectively and more energetically than anybody had done before. Because they sat around and had meetings um, where they were figuring out, how do we do this well? You know, and being German, figured out the best way of doing it. But this is not a new thing. I mean, for a thousand years, all throughout Europe, people have been going, how do we deal with the Jewish problem? So, the final solution was just the most effective way of dealing with the Jewish problem. But, 1559, Paul took an imperial right onto himself and created the Order of the Golden Spur, which made holy knights of those who had distinguished themselves militarily for the church. And again, this is an interesting concept where you go, this is a military decoration for church people. If you have killed people well for Jesus, you get this thing. Uh, so it's his way of encouraging people specifically to take out uh, Protestants in particular. But you've done a good job of killing Protestants, you get to be a knight of the Holy Roman Church, not necessarily the Holy Roman Empire. This is where you start... This isn't establishing the Knights of Columbus, but this is where you start getting some of these ideas of we're making church knights. We've had holy orders of knights up to this point where knights became like their own holy order. This is a time where you go, 
we're making you a knight because of what you've done militarily. At this point, yeah. that they're Protestants. Okay, that's yeah, that's probably the biggest thing is that they're they're not wanting to stay Catholic. Um, there are specific things that they disagree on theologically that we've talked about several times, but their biggest problem that they exist. Um, within a century or two, so many people had gotten one of these things, it had become a really big joke. I love this 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 uh, this thing here. Lithograph in 1842 shows a knight of the Golden Spur awaiting as a prize for his services a distinguished post in the government. He would, however, willingly accept a tobacconist shot or position as an inspector of street, street sweeping. Um, <laughs> Voltaire said, I am so sick of people talking to me about my, my stupid Order of the Golden Spur thing. I have wasted the minutes of my life I have wasted explaining this are not worth the stupid metal. Uh, so it, it's like it had become a big joke even within a couple hundred years. But, uh, there's also some dispute, was it Paul IV or was his successor, Pius IV, who came in in 1559, who created this thing? I don't know. It's one of those two. This guy's another Medici Pope, because we haven't gotten rid of the Medici yet. They're still floating around. So, you got this Medici Pope coming to power in 1559. Anyway, 1560, the Reformation came to Scotland. Now, how long has the Scottish Church been oppressed by Rome? Anybody remember? Remember when we talked about this? Gobs of time. If you remember the Council of Whitby back in 664, remember that when we talked about the Council of Whitby? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church clashed with the, the Celtic Church. This, yeah! It's all about how you cut your hair at Easter, right? How do monks cut their hair, and what day do you use for Easter? Um, because because the Roman Catholics cut their hair this way, the Celts were cutting their hair this way, and the Celts were foolishly um, saying, well, how about we judge Easter based on what the Jews also had figured out for Easter, what with Jesus being Jewish, the Catholic Church are like, what are you, crazy? They're Jews! You can't do it the way they do it! Here is an extremely complicated formula that we've come up with that has nothing to do with what the in addition, all church services are going to be held in Latin instead of the native tongues, and we're we're going to do you have to do all the Latin rites and this whole try to reach people with their um, with their language. Yeah, that stops now. Make them learn Latin. Still going on in the 1500s. Make them learn Latin. You go, nobody speaks Latin anymore. 500 years ago, people are going, nobody speaks Latin anymore, but you. No, you still must do it. Um, this whole. Uh, um, this whole thing of people should confess their sins before the whole church, we should be open and honest with one another, and then you should absolutely forgive them and help them move forward. No. Quietly confess to the priest, make them do a whole bunch of penance. That's what this is about. And, and, the, and the Celts have been going, but nobody seems to actually be penitent. They just seem to say things on the rosary and then walk away and keep doing their stuff. Our way, people actually said, you know, you're right, I should change my life and I should honor Christ. Yes, but this is the way we do it in Rome. So they officially repressed the Celtic Church, and as I said before, if you'll remember, until recently, Scottish divinity schools, when teaching church history, skipped from 664 to 1560. <laughs> they're like, nothing happened. <laughs> Seriously, and that's the way they're like, 664, Council of Whitby. Nothing happened. Now we're 1560. So... 
900 years of nothing! Reformation comes to Scotland. It's a guy named John Knox, who's a Scottish Reformed priest who helped Cranmer put together the Book of Common Prayer that we talked about last time. In fact, he ended up serving ultimately as a chaplain to King Edward VI, and then had problems with once Mary came into power, as you might imagine. Go figure. Anyway, I should clarify, because this gets confusing. There were actually three Queen Marys at one point. How many people have ever gotten themselves a little messed up by... Okay. okay. Three Queen Marys. So, we've already talked about Mary Tudor. Mary the First, Bloody Mary of England, right? Daughter of Henry. That's one Mary. There's also Mary, Queen of Scots, that you may have heard of, uh, who became a queen when she's six days old. A lot of responsibility for a little girl. But she's the cousin to Mary and Elizabeth, right? Actually, she was a cousin. A distant cousin. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> but she can't actually rule as a six-year-old. Her mom! Mary of Guise. There is no Mary of Guise. It's Mary de Guise. But you'll still hear people talk about Mary of Guise, and every time it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. It's like, okay. it's not Guise, but it's Mary de Guise. From the oh no, Brits do it too. Um, the British like mispronouncing French words. They love mispronouncing French words. How about this nice fillet of beef? I'd like to Hey! Or the Marquis. I was gonna say, hey Marquis! Can I have a fan of beef? Me Marquis! So, um, there's a very powerful Catholic family, the, 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 the Geese family, in Lorraine, which is which is recently French, right? Up to this point it's been German. But if you remember, this is recently French when when King Henri helped out the Schmalkaldic League. We keep talking about the Schmalkaldic League. And I want you to remember that, that group. So they gave Henri the Lorraine. Anyway, so this powerful family of geese. So Mary of Guise essentially ran Scotland because she wasn't part of the succession. She was the queen who married in. She couldn't be the next queen because she only married in, but her daughter is a blood relative, so she could be the next queen. So you've got Mary... Tudor, Mary Queen of Scots, and Mary of Geese, who's running, running Scotland. As soon as King James V of Scotland died, Mary, being French, said, Counter-Reformation, we're going to make Scotland Catholic again. And so we're totally Catholicizing this. Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. Lots of Reformed clergy are arrested, burned for heresy, including Knox's good friend, George. So Knox says, oh, I'll help with the armed rebellion against Mary of Geese. Knox is interesting. He had been actually a bodyguard for George. Uh, he walking around with a double-handed claymore uh, strapped to his back. Knox is a studly guy. Uh, Knox is a big, tough Scottish dude with a big, stinking sword. And so he's like, yep, we're going to do an armed rebellion, which um, didn't work because Mary appealed to Henri, saying, hey, remember how you got the Lorraine because you helped out the Schmalkaldic League? How'd you like to have By the way, the Scottish loved this. Right? Because Scottish clansmen love it when you promise Scotland to French kings. Love it. Anyway, so Henri comes over and his French troops besiege the Scottish castle that Knox has held up in, and then they arrest him, right? 
Max spends the next year and a half rowing as a French galley slave. Fun story. I love this. The French demanded that the Scottish Protestants who were acting as... Remember, because that's what you do as a galley slave. You row the oars and stuff. Some guy goes, boom, boom. That's yeah. Anyway. They took the captured Scottish Protestants and they forced them to kiss a portrait of the Virgin Mary as an act of veneration. You must venerate the Holy Virgin Mary. Knox took it and threw it overboard, saying, Let our lady now save herself. She's light enough. Let her learn how to swim. <laughs> so the French never pressed that issue anymore. <laughs> Him for the, his fellow. I love that though. Wow. I, even if you sit there and go, well, that was tacky. I'm like, well, if I were chained to an oar and I had been a, a Protestant <laughs> clergyman and somebody said, you've got to kiss the Virgin Mary's pictures and, and prove how Catholic you are, I'd be tempted to throw it overboard too. And they're like, what are you going to do? Kill me? You're going to kill me anyway. Nobody leaves the Scottish, uh, the, nobody leaves the French galleys. But, um, it, it would take a Scotsman to do, to do this. It's like, like, it's a totally picture of the French. Go, do we get another picture? It's like, no, no, we don't get another picture. <laughs> no. Anyway, so he eventually does get away from the, from the galleys and makes his way back to England to serve Cranmer and Edward the, the Sixth. You know, this is where he becomes this chaplain to Edward the Sixth. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to go back to Scotland, so what am I going to do? But then Mary comes to power, and Knox has to leave, because, you know, she's severely Catholic. And so he's like, I've been there, done that, ended up a French galley slave. I think I'm going to Geneva. Because what's going on in Geneva? Who's in Geneva? That's where Jean Calvin. That's right. That's where they keep Jean Calvin, is in Geneva. So he stays there in Geneva for several years. He's a pastor there. He's a, a liaison between all the British refugees, because there's a lot of British refugees there, and all the Calvinists. He's like, yeah, this is okay. Years later, he hears, okay, things have changed in Scotland. Things are cool. Um, yes, it's Catholic, but they're, they're, they're actually very open to, to Protestants serving here. Um, Mary de Guise says, all right, I promise you safe passage. I don't agree with you, but we're not going to hunt you down and kill you. So it's Mary East right now that's so, gotten... Yeah, she's in charge of Scotland still. it up, okay. Yeah. Okay. But he wrote a book... Before he left, he wrote a book about how dangerous and unnatural before God it is to have a woman running a kingdom. <gasps> oh! <laughs> which, which didn't endear him to anybody, <laughs> other than all the guys. Um, so who, who beat him to the shore? The book or the... Or the, the book, the book yeah. yeah. Which is why Queen Elizabeth said, can't come through England. It's like, well, I'm coming. I'm coming from Geneva. I'm going through France. I'll go to England and I'll go north. She's like, no, you aren't. Kid. Make your way around England, but you don't get to come through England. You naughty, naughty boy. So, she didn't like John Knox. So he did, in 1559, he goes back and finally returns to Scotland, at which point he's immediately declared outlaw by Mary Geese, who called for his arrest and torture and, 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 and burning execution. Because she lied! And he didn't endear himself to any female monarch. Now, here's the fun part. You're a bunch of Protestant Scottish nobles who for years have been kowtowing to a Catholic French woman who's been telling them what to do, who has promised Scotland to France, who promised Knox he could come back, and then lied. And they're like, all right, I'm done with you. I, I put up with this. I'm sick of you, woman. I've had enough of you. 
you know that book he wrote makes some sense to me. So, <laughs> so this whole yes, up with his head kind of thing. She's like, no more. So um, they depose her, and when she dies in 1560, there's a new Scottish Parliament that asks Knox to help them draft the foundations for a new Church of Scotland. They're like, enough of this. I don't care that Mary Queen of Scots is Catholic. We're not. That whole emperor said who rules their religion is in the land. Scotland is officially going too. In their very Scottish way, which may have even included throwing the Scottish. So they're like, I don't care if our queen is Catholic. We are Protestant. Kind of huge when you think about it. Because they're thumbing their nose not only at their queen, but at the Holy Roman Empire at the church, and everybody. Of course, they're sitting there going, oh, we're all the way up in Scotland. You know, what are they going to do? But, um... There's a reason for that, Wall. There's a reason for that. They're, they're nuts! Yeah. <laughs> Hadrian was right. Everything they know what they hear is wacky land. <laughs> I'm Scottish. I get to say that. Yeah, kind of fun, but, um, but they they also withdrew all their support for the Pope. They said, no, it is illegal to celebrate the Mass. It is illegal to, uh, uh, to have any non-Calvinist pro uh, practices. We are totally, we are doing Mary's thing in reverse. You know, so there's, it's not like they're all about religious tolerance here. They're like, no, no, no. We're all extremely Calvinist here. Pardon me? I've got a lot of Oh, well, that's what history's all about, isn't it? It's like, yeah. It's like, oh, movies are horrible, horrible. Oh, family films. Oh, we're sick of those. Torture films. Oh, no, more family films. Christians actually make films that find other way into theaters. You know, stuff like that. Pendulum swings. Um, so the Scots Confession is born, including a confession of faith based on Calvinism, the Book of Discipline for the Church, the Book of Order for worship services. This is this is kind of huge. And since the church's structure called for ten districts, each overseen by an elder or presbyter, from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder, right? The offshoot of Calvinism became known as the Scottish Presbyterian Church. So for everybody in our, in our room here that has any background in Presbyterianism, this is where you go, Yay, I'm born! <laughs> 1560. <laughs> After 900 years of nothing, we finally have a church in Scotland. Okay, also in 1560 that the Geneva Bible is completed. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Geneva Bible, but... Um, British clergy were putting this together. Again, they're all running away from Bloody Mary, right? They're, they're like, we've got to get away. So they tend to go to Geneva where there's a safe-ish haven. i got to say safe-ish because the Calvinists didn't like anybody but Calvinists, right? And the British Reformation was not about Calvinism. So you go, if you're not a happy Calvinist, you're going to be in trouble. Hey, hey, hey. You can't say that just because Randy's not here. That's not true. Now, Whittingham, this, this, this British clergyman that came over, ended up uh, pastoring Knox's old church there in Geneva and marrying Calvin's sister-in-law. So it was pretty safe for him, obviously. But, um, using Tyndale's translation and then having other people like Coverdale, in fact, Coverdale did his own Bible, the Coverdale Bible, which you might hear of at some point. But uh, he had been the Bishop of Exeter before the purge from Mary. Um, Coverdale, Whittingham, and Knox saw the creation and publication of a very new kind of Bible. 
And it's not only a really good translation and a really dynamic, interesting translation, but they also did a couple of important things. They did study aids, like chapter, little bitty thingy. When you open up your Bible and you see a little thing after it says chapter 1, by the way, this is what happens here in chapter 1 of the, that's started here with the Geneva Bible. And maps and illustrations, yeah, you never had a Bible without, that, that, that had, they'd had illuminations, but the idea of illustrations and maps and, and stuff like that, study aids, things along the, 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 the margin that said, by the way, if you like this verse, you got to go look at Psalm 4, 3, blah, blah, blah. Which points to another thing that they started here. Anybody else know what the major innovation the Geneva Bible brought in? No? Oh, Versification. Because if I'm going to point you to something, I need to point you pinpointedly to it. So, there's a French printer named Robert Etienne who designed uh, these verses as study aids uh, so that you can actually find the stuff that you're doing. Um, if you remember, there was an Archbishop of, of Canterbury back in 1227 that had divided up into chapters, and now you've got them divided up into verses, which means, in general, you should, pardon me, thank the English church for chapters and verses, because the English Archbishop came up with chapters, and a French guy came up with verses for the English Geneva Bible. So, according to legend, most of the versification was made during Etienne's long commute between Paris and Lyon on horseback, which is why some of the verses make more sense than others. There are a few where you go, that's mid-sentence. It doesn't even make sense. You, how, do you start, how do you start a verse with, and then he left? It's like, that's, wait! That's, anyway. Still, look like this. That doesn't look all that different from a, a modern study Bible. This is the first study Bible. It's kind of huge. What's somebody going to say? Okay. Kind of a huge deal. And it's the first Bible that had been specifically designed, translated, printed to help the layman study and appreciate God's Word. This, you can't hardly talk about how huge the Geneva Bible is in terms of this kind of stuff. Um, in fact, um, this, I was going to say, this is the Bible that Shakespeare used. This is the Bible that John Bunyan used. This is the Bible the pilgrims had on the Mayflower. This is the Geneva Bible. Ultimately led to the creation of the King James Bible 50 years later, so everybody goes, yay. <laughs> Pardon me? <laughs> now, I, I grew up with the King James Bible. I have to, my verses, I quote in half of them in, the, in King James. Knox pushed for it to be named the official Bible of the Church of Scotland. In fact, it was law, Scottish law in, in uh, 1579, that any household that had at least 300 marks in liquid assets, that's about 700 bucks, if you had 700 bucks in the bank, you must buy it. You oh, must own it? it. I don't know. I could never figure this out. Huh. Um, there, there's, there's too many different people saying too many different things. Uh, so I don't know. Do you know even around? How yeah. much did this thing actually cost oh. to buy? I don't know. <laughs> Part of it is all. Part of also is I know that there were various editions of it. So I don't okay. know. Okay. And if you had 700 bucks in the bank, you had to buy this thing. Huh. So something less than 700 bucks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, and, and, and you sit there and go, well, I would hope so. Yeah, books are still kind of expensive at this stage. But, but think about that. This is at a time when in Roman Catholic kingdoms, it is a crime punishable by death for a family to even have a psalter. And in Scotland, it is the law that you must buy the best Bible that's ever been printed. And if you did it? Um, I think you got fined. 
Sunday and taught them how to read. By the way, we'll teach them how to read using the Bible and share the gospel while doing that. Go figure. Anyway, so wacky fun with this. 1560 is also the same year that Philip Melanchthon died. He's one of these white hat guys of the Reformation. You go, he's just trying to be a good guy. He's trying to do different things. Age 63. If you remember, Johann Friedrich of Saxony uh, had been uh, captured, or had been, had been forced by Carlos V. Had been by... Now, technically, that's grammatically correct, but it's so awkward. Had been by Carlos V forced to sign the capitulation of Wittenberg. Do you remember when he had led a, a revolt in Saxony and lost? Carlos said, "You absolutely have to sign this this capitulation of Wittenberg." When the Schmalkaldic League had lost their attempt at independence. Really, you just like saying Schmalkaldic. I so do, and like I'm saying, in Germany, this is huge. They still have a big festival every year. You know, annually appreciating the Schmalkaldic League, and nobody in America has ever heard of them. So yes, I'm liking to say it. Um, but the reason it was the capitulation of Wittenberg was because uh, they, the, the Catholic Church wanted to stamp down the, re the revolt in the same city they saw, Protestantism, as starting it. Because if you remember, Wittenberg was where Luther had posted his, uh, his 95 Theses. And so like, in the same place where Luther posted his 95 Theses, you have to sign something saying, we love Catholicism. In fact, according to legend, Carlos even had the capitulation posted on the door of the church in Wittenberg, just like Luther, according to legend, posted his 95 <laughs> Theses, just to rub it in. You have lost, you have lost soundly, it's over, we're done, you've lost. And then under Moritz of Saxony, when the, the Schmalkaldic League actually won their independence, um, the Lutheran Church needed to be restructured, rebuilt, including Wittenberg. And so um, Philip Melanchthon was in the process of founding the University of Leipzig, of rebuilding the church in Wittenberg, of rebuilding Lutheranism when he passed away. He died very happy, surrounded by friends and family, and he wrote about his death saying, Thou shalt be delivered from sins and be freed from the acrimony and uh, acrimony, acrimony, I can't talk, acrimony and fury of theologians. Because <laughs> if you remember, he had talked about that he felt like Martin had, had fallen victim to um, theological rabies. This idea of you get so worked up thinking you're the only one that's right, that even if you were right, You've ceased being right because now it's just you're frothing at the mouth about it. You, everybody else must be wrong because I know I'm right. And and even when I try to talk to you about it, you can't hear it because all you hear is, but Catholicism was so wrong. We must be right. And I go, yes, Catholicism was wrong from our from our perspectives. We understood it. We go, yes, it's wrong. It doesn't mean that you're right anymore. Even if you're preaching correctly, your heart is wrong. You've gone rabid. You've missed it. And, and I, we still run into that today, where there are things where you go, I may even agree with you theologically, and I'm like, please don't be on my side. Because you are, your heart is so foul. You're so focused on apologetics that you've missed the idea that you're trying to save people. You're trying to draw them closer to the Lord. You care about these people. You're wanting, 
you're wanting to beat people over the head with the fact that you're the only one who's right here. And so he's like, yep. He, he wrote, yeah, finally, finally, be done with all that. Be done with all this anger, all this fighting, all this fury of theologians. Same year that, that the Reformation came to Scotland, the same year that Philip Melanchthon died, that's when the French Wars of Religion began. That's with the Huguenots, yeah. Roughly 4 million Catholics and Calvinists, quarter of the population, died in the name of Jesus in 38 years of fighting. Nasty, nasty, nasty massacres in the streets, primarily brought about by the House of Peace, which is part of why I made such a big deal about you really ought to pronounce it correctly, because the House of Peace instigated the wars of religion against, uh, against the Huguenots. Now, how would you summarize this period in history? So we're going to end on that. How would you summarize this period in history in general? Oh, it doesn't want to do it. The good, the bad, the ugly, what would you say? Nations are tearing each other apart, tearing themselves apart. Christians are tearing each other apart. They've been doing that for a while. But yes, this is kicking into full gear on a national level. This is, we're not talking anymore just about um, Albigensians and their, their you know, village over here or there. This is whole nations going to what amounts to civil war. In fact, you can make an argument that the British Civil War in the next century is largely, at least begins largely as a religious war. There is that. There is that. Um, especially in some of the things in, in England. Well, and you can see even the beginnings of how vitriolic it is even today in Ireland. Uh, when, between the Protestants and the Catholics, you say, well, is that a religious thing or is that a political thing? You know, yes, but it's mostly a social, a social, uh, sociocultural thing. It's like, I... To, to see myself as um, as a as as a socioculturally Irish person, if I see myself as Irish, I'm not British, I'm Irish, then I'm Catholic. I mean, I believe I I, I I care about the Catholic Church at all. I may hate the Pope. I may have never set foot inside of a church, but there's no way I would be Protestant because that's an English thing. So it is a political thing, but even more so a sociocultural thing. It's not just politics, it's to show that I'm a good Irishman, I will hate English and I will hate Protestants. How much sad then when you think of the roots of Irish Christianity? Oh, when, when you sit there, I, I, as I've tried to say multiple times, I think in history the group that, at least up until this point, the group that had got the heart of it closest right would be the Celts, the, the, the Irish and the Scottish. Um, these are the guys that are like, let's get back to scripture, let's write it, in the, let's get the best text we can get, let's train people as well as we can, let's establish universities everywhere so that we have intelligently well-trained people, let's do this in, in our own languages, let's emphasize personal walk with the Lord. The best way you can do evangelism is not top-down, the king tells you, it's at the roots, the grassroots, talk to your neighbor, connect with them, I'll teach you how to read so that you can read your Bible. Yeah. 
It kind of makes you wonder whether, I don't know, the Cromwell campaign would have been more successful if he had appealed to that history instead of just trying to smack everybody down with an iron fist. He would probably be not burned in effigy every year uh, in Ireland. Uh, probably. But yeah, if you if you said, when you think about what we're trying to do in the Reformation, we're really getting back to a lot of what the heart of what Catholic Celts did a thousand years ago. That probably would have worked out much better. At, at, at all sorts of levels. forced to believe in certain things to depend on whoever king or queen, pope, all that, and all these people are being killed for different things, you know, and, you know, you think about the movie, like, um, one of the original movies, uh, and Christmas, Christmas Carol, yeah. you know, like, the the lady that cleans his house and stuff, she's scared, you know, and they bring the goods, you know, that they get, it, it just makes so much sense, they're all so scared of anybody knowing what they believe, and they can't even talk about the salvation or, you know, about Jesus or that you're really going to heaven or hell. Mm-hmm. It's, there, there, there are a couple of important steps between this and today in this, but you can see even here somewhat of the roots of the whole United States idea of, well, you don't talk about religion and politics with people. You just don't talk about that. That's your own thing. Um, it, it flip-flops too much. And, and, and so all you're going to do is, is pick a fight if you tell them stuff. Like I said, there's some important additional things that, that went on between this and, and now, but there's at least the roots of that in this, of, of saying it's just inherently dangerous, uh, even amongst Christians. It makes me think some of even like the Book of Judges and, and later when they want to get, you know, just that, that sort of that turmoil, trying to find your way and, and the self-interest and the, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I, and, and yet... And, 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 and so I, I want you to see, we got a very scary time, lots of people dying. And since this is the Wars of Religion Part 1, and I really could even say Part 0, this is the preface to a lot of this, um, it, it doesn't get better in the next 38 years. You know, it, it's just going to get ugly. And yet, I want you to hear, even in the midst of this, you have people who are saying, I, I'm going to hold to the faith. I'm going to, you have people coming to know the Lord because they're saying, this is not healthy. What you're trying to make me do is not healthy. You have Thomas Cranmer who sat there and said, sure, I'll say you guys never consummated your marriage. Thomas Cranmer is one of the more interesting people to me in, in this whole era. Because you sit there and you go, you basically sucked up to your king. You declared his marriage null and void so that he could marry another woman that might give him a son. And you did it in the name of Jesus. You, you basically sold out. And then, as the Archbishop of Canterbury... Henry said, okay, you're now in charge of the whole religion of England. And, and, and Cranmer was like, well, we probably ought to do this part right. And then as, as, as he went on, as Henry kept offing off his wives and annulling different things, Cranmer started going, you, you can't do that. This is wrong. And Henry's like, well, you're as bad as the Pope. And he's like, well, what you're doing is wrong. And then after Henry died, that he actually is importing theologians from Germany, going, um, can we actually get some theology in this? And writes the Book of Common Prayer and tries to say, can we, can we actually honor the Lord in this? To the point where finally, 
Um, even though he was scared spitless after seeing everybody tortured and killed and dying, being burnt at the stake, nasty way to go, he recants, and then recants his recantation, and, and, and with his dying thoughts, shoves his hand into the fire, you go, there are people that have grown as a result of all this messed upness. Thomas Cranmer is just a perfect example of somebody that you go, you went from being basically like, yeah, sure, whatever, yeah, make me archbishop, that's great, yeah, this works, corrupt, depending on how you want to view the term corrupt, to somebody who genuinely seems to love the Lord, who genuinely seems to want to get back to Scripture, genuinely wants to make this right. You see people like Knox who will not bend on this stuff. Crazy Scotsman with a sword strapped to his back. I mean, you, could, you see people going, I'm willing to go to my death for something important. I'm willing to go here. I'm, I'm willing to put together the Geneva Bible. Can we can we build a Bible so that lay people can not just read it, but study it? Can you go through and do versification so that they can find specific verses? We have priests who refuse to read the Bible because they think it might mess them up to read the Bible and actually hear the Word of God. We want people to know chapter and verse exactly where things are in Scripture. We want them to commit it to their, to their hearts. It's, a, it's this huge, dramatic gulf. But it's an important gulf where you say there's there's increasingly people who are extremely messed up and people who are extremely ardently devoutly Christian. So it's just a very interesting time of history, very bloody, and yet lots of passion. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for all those who have gone before. I thank you for those who are willing to go to their deaths to provide us a Bible. Um, Lord, I pray, help us not to take our Bibles so for granted when these guys are willing to die to make sure that we have an English Bible that we can't be bothered to open on a daily basis. Help us, Lord. Not out of guilt, not out of um, shame or, or obligation, but out of appreciation, help us to say thank you every time we open up our, our Bibles and say thank you, Lord, for all those saints who have come before us that are part of the family of Christ. And I pray, Lord, help us to, to live today as if what we do today will echo 500 years from now. Even in small ways or ripples that we can't even possibly fathom. Work in us, Lord, to love you well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh yeah.